Hey, I'm Sean. And I'm Jesse. And, and we're, we're the, the DMs, DMs of, of Vancouver. Vancouver. We're two newish DMs who are still getting the hang of the whole DM thing. So we sit down with a friend every couple of weeks and pick their brain on their approach to DMing. So come along as we figure out how to help our players have the best time possible at the gaming table. This episode is brought to you in part by Dice Bart. Dice Bard is an online shop with a great selection of dice and sales that rotate every 24 hours. So if you ever have your sights set on a specific set but not a lot of cash, it won't be long till it goes on sale. Running for new players and want to get them quickly acquainted with the different dice they'll need? The Complete Adventures Dice Kit has 29 color-coded dice that are easy to distinguish while reaching hastily across the table so they can roll damage for their fireball spell. Visit DiceBard.com and use the code DMVAN at checkout to get free expedited shipping and let them know that we sent you. DiceBard has everything you need to play Dungeons & Dragons, as long as all you need is dice. This episode is also brought to you in part by Libris Arcana, Canada's premier dice subscription service. Every month you can get a new complete set from D4s to D20s delivered straight to your door. Dice themes are new each month and can be anything your mind can imagine and more. Visit LibrisArcana.com to get a subscription for just $7.97 Canadian each month. Use the promo code DMVAN to let them know we sent you. Be prepared to open up new worlds of adventure with Libris Arcana. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of DMs of Vancouver. Today we're going to be talking about world building. We've got uh, Douglas Vandalay here with us. How's it going, Doug? Oh, good. How are you? Doing pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. Um, so, Doug, uh, t- tell us a bit about yourself, how long you've been playing, anything else you want the audience to know. Uh, so, I've been playing uh, various RP- tabletop RPGs since I was about 10, and I'm 28 now. So I'll let you listen to us do the maths on that one. Um, I, can't, I can't minus 10 from 28. Um, but anyway, uh, I've only been playing D&D itself for maybe five years or so, on and off. And I kind of pick and choose the rules as I see fit. Because um, as said, we're talking about world building. And I'm more into, more into uh, the building of a narrative and characters and and setting than I am into the mechanics of gameplay. Is it alright if I plug my podcast on here? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so I'm the host of another Vancouver podcast, Comedy Zeitgeist, on the Cave Goblin Network, where I interview local comedians about their comedic influences. I'm having a past guest of yours, Joseph Stilwell, uh, on the podcast next Tuesday. Oh, nice. I don't know when this will air, but his episode will air Wednesday week from now. This one will air a bit after that. We'll be, this one will be coming out in about a month. All right, so that's ready for you. Go <laughs> and listen to that. But hey, uh, if you want to listen to our friend Joe talk about comedy, and I, with your the format for your podcast, because I've listened, is um, you talk kind of about what, what they do, and then you talk about a comedian that kind of inspires them or informs their comedy, right? Yeah, that's right. So talk, you'll hear Joe talk about some of his writing, probably, and his and favorite comedian. We're talking about the uh, Coen brothers, actually. Oh, uh, which would be an interesting one. I've been trying to catch up on those movies. Unfortunately, Netflix doesn't doesn't have uh, many of them. But I watched Hail Caesar for the first time, which was been meaning to get around to that one. If you are uh, if you like socialist domestic terrorists and what's the word I'm looking for uh, period pieces about old timey Hollywood, then it's a movie for you. So let's dive into world building. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's start with the basics. When you're when you're starting to build a world. Where do you usually start? Uh, okay, so when I'm starting uh, for a new campaign, uh, for instance, I usually have a few stories in my head that I want to to go through, stories that I've come up with, maybe written short stories about, or have been knocking around in my head. If, uh, if I'm playing with a group who I know hasn't seen a specific movie or read a specific book, sometimes I'll use those elements. Um, like I recently ran a campaign that was set in a sort of quasi-shattered plane from the Stormlight Archive series, so I Brandon Sanderson, because um, that's that's an amazing setting. And so I use pieces of that, um, like the shattered plane itself, to create this, this world for my players. I've been more or less creating the same planet since I started playing when I was 10, and it's got less and less copyright infringy over the years as I developed <laughs> it in myself. Like when it started, it was a mix of the old world from from Warhammer and the what would you call it? the Forgotten Realms and uh, Azeroth, basically. And more and more, I've injected my own elements into it. 
It's now even got elements of that shattered plane in it as a different thing, which I'm hopefully, I say hopefully, this is the first time I've ever talked about this publicly in any way. I've been writing a novel set in that. Oh, cool. But that that's probably going to be a decade before anyone hears about that again. <laughs> so, so, you, so that sounds like you've kind of got a base that you build off of every time that you, you want to run a campaign. Um, how do you... How do you flesh out the like the bits and pieces for like like I, I'm guessing like you've got this world so like you can you can have a campaign set you know over here on this continent or over here in this mountain range or whatever how do you how do you go about like fleshing out the bits the specific bits and pieces you need for your campaign Well this is why I like running my worlds in a, a group setting and that I'll figure out generally what the players plans are for a campaign like what their play style is going to be and then i can from there figure out what part of my world it's going to be set in and just a generic direction to take them in and then they help flesh out the world for me as uh there's there's improv elements to it i know the broad strokes like this country does this is the culture this is the cities and villages and then maybe the players actions will start to influence that and which is good because i can pick and choose the stories that my players create as well to inject into the world's law. So I want to talk specifically actually about, I ran this one campaign of a completely invented format. It was homebrew in every sense of the word from grade seven to the year after high school finished with these two guys. But the way we played it uh, was it was only ever one-on-one and they were never together, but they were in the same world. So their actions would directly influence the world that the other player was also living in. And there was just rules that they could never interact with the other character directly unless they're in the same room and so they got into this uh they both eventually this is something i really like doing is giving my players a town that they eventually become some kind of lord of based on if you ever played might magic 7 one of the first things that happens is you get given an old castle and a village and throughout the game it gets bigger and better and so you get that that kind of building micromanagement in it and they were both trying to make their cities the the best in the world and uh so one player would maybe be he'd be angry at player a and player b would decide like i'm gonna make a blockade along the ocean here and stop trade from this continent getting to their city and then maybe they start to starve so a good example of this is one of the characters player a uh was a necromancer who eventually became because we played for six years so vampire lich lord and the other guy was a uh what started off as a druid became a samurai centaur druid dragon tamer um and so he had this this sort of elf woodland colony and this other guy had like the classic transylvania sort of town where he unknowingly terrorized the citizens that's an interesting thing he thought he was a good guy but he was definitely a bad guy (laughs) the whole time and so uh i wouldn't let them metagame because they knew about each other's characters but they'd use that to try and find out information. Player B, the, the wood elf guy, figured out that this guy was actually a vampire, and so he started an inquisition on him. And it, through indirect action over the course of a year, led to that entire country being, there being a sort of an undead genocide there, and they're all being ousted and uh, replaced with puppet governors, which he wasn't very happy about. <laughs> so when you've got a world like that, a world that you've built over a long period of time, do you find that it's easier or more fun, whichever, to just continue moving forward in that world? Or do you find that it's sometimes more fun to go back? Like, let's go back a thousand years and see what was going on back then. How do you deal with, like, time periods and stuff like that? Uh, I think it's a, that's a really interesting question because it's something I'd like to do. But I find because of the general course of events that keeps happening in this world, the last three or four campaigns I've done set in this same world, I basically retconned and started from the same date because the players don't know each other anyway. Uh, I'd really like to have an ongoing campaign like that other one where it keeps going. And then maybe if I have another campaign running at the same time, I can make that in the past or in the future. But at this time, no. Um, there are some some stories set in that universe based on uh, that are the basis for a card game I've been developing with a friend that are set... 77 years before the events that i usually run the campaign in that are sort of instrumental in all of that and so those characters have become folk legends in that narrative um and it'd be cool uh i have considered if, if uh 
I were to have a, a long campaign, having those two characters, player A and B, I talked about before, being sort of folk legends in okay. this world. I think that's... Uh, it's actually, I think, a really useful tactic for somebody who's, who's built their own setting. Um, like... Because, you know, you have people who've been running the same setting for forever and they keep coming back to it and, like, working old characters into the past. But I think it's also could be a really useful tool to do what you're doing, which is starting at the same time period every time. And, like, so you already kind of know some of the course of history, maybe outside of the, like, kind of isolated pocket of whatever the characters are doing. I think that could be really useful, like, you know, running a module over and over again, but, like, changing it up. And since you're not running them always in the same town, they get their own town, it's going to turn out differently and they're maybe in different parts of the world. I think that's, I think that's really neat, actually. So what about um, other details? Like, when it comes to building a world, like, when I think about it, I, I feel like there's so much stuff that goes into it. Like, thinking about governments and geography and myths and, you know, ancient history and stuff like that. Is there any parts that you tend to focus on or do you find that just as you need bits and pieces you'll you'll write them i tend to go through phases with my world building where i might be really into political structures for a few months and get into that like there's a big important city that is like a strong oligarchy and then there is a race of socialist orcs in in one part of the world but then i might get really interested in uh, religions of those places at another time. Uh, right now, I'm basing a lot of the different cultures on real-world cultures, which is kind of a trope that most fantasy fantasy uh, authors and world builders will do. I'm trying to turn it on its head a little bit. But yeah, based on how the, the militaries work, and uh, I'm not sure I'm answering the question here. Um, <laughs> sorry, what was the question again? Basically, like, do you find that it's easier to like go and write like a hundred year period of history from like a 10,000 foot view, or do you find that it's easier to like, you know, as you're playing a game, if, uh, you know, players are about to go encounter some ancient temple or some deserted city that you figure out all the relevant bits and pieces then, or do you kind of have just this big tapestry that you're filling in bits and pieces when you, when you're like, like you said, when you're interested in, you know, doing, political structures you'll do that for a whole bunch of places for you know a period of time and then move on or do you yeah do you just kind of build what needs to be built for the campaign as it comes up you know it's kind of a mixture of both of those and that i have these foundations that are pretty loose and then i use the campaign itself as a method for getting into the nitty-gritty like because i've done this before i I spent two weeks designing the city. Like, uh, I drew every building in the city from a bird's eye view. And uh, in SketchUp, I made a 3D model of it that the players could go in. And they spent one session there. And then they left. And uh, I thought, I'm never going to do that again. So I have generally that... That is the most fleshed out city I've ever created. I know a lot about it. But now I'll have the general idea, like, what's the political structure of this place? What's the dominant religion? What races live there maybe what's the major conflict going on in that area and then improv i'll let the players discover along with me sometimes i think the players think i've thought of a lot more beforehand than i have i mean i think that's the <laughs> ideal illusion a dm can create right i absolutely know everything that's happening here yes <laughs> um when it, one of the things that just popped in my head is when it comes to stuff like religion when you're doing world building do you tend to have I kind of took a cheap shortcut in the, the homebrew uh, world that I've created for my campaign and just, yeah, all of them worship the same pantheon, just, you know, maybe they view them slightly differently. Do you create have different, like, completely different religions and pantheons for various areas of the world? Um, and what's the reasoning for it? I, I do have different, uh, if we're talking again about the same world I keep referencing, there are different religions there. And the reasoning for it, I try and look on historical references for that. Like I like in our world uh, that there are the, what is it, four Abrahamic religions or something. And then there's, you know, a million kinds of Christianity, sort of like what you're saying. They have the same pantheon and then they worship them in different ways. I like the religions having similar origins, which, because you're in a fantasy setting, leads you to believe that some of them could be true. Like there is, my favorite religion I've created is based on, so there is these, these, 
this uh, race of orcs that are basically Vikings. And they have, similar to the Viking gods, except they're all different animals. And instead of wanting to die in battle so that they can go and sit in Valhalla with the gods and then fight with them, their religion is based on fighting in battle to die to be worthy to go and battle the gods and kill them themselves. And so the god they worship, they're worshipping to try and find out as much about it as they can to try and kill it because it's the ultimate prize. And uh, those gods in that scenario are actually real and they know about it. And so they also influence the the other religions. Like there's this one, Korvanak, he's a raven god. He's the trickster god. And he, he will talk to certain people that um, he finds interesting and influence them in certain ways. But then there's like the, the standard monotheistic human religion that's a lot like puritanical Christianity and things that's just based on, you know, a race's insecurity of thinking that they're the chosen people meant to be there. I guess I'm just curious because when you're world building for like a comic or a book or a movie or a TV show or whatever it is, you're like anything that's not D&D, when it comes to deciding political structures or religions things where it's you know in the real world it's kind of all opinions and beliefs like some deeply held beliefs in some cases but there's no proof whereas in D&D you have stuff like clerics and paladins where it's like they are well I guess it depends on how you homebrew the like the rationale behind those those classes but like in my in my case um in the world that i've built they are directly powered by the gods like they have proof that these gods exist so there's a little bit more i guess the way that i thought about it was like they've got proof that these gods exist so all the other religions kind of just went oh darn (laughs) i I think that's a good point and how i think about that like i was saying with the the gods influencing the people how they want so maybe this paladin follows x religion uh, and is having these uh, these powers and sees as proof of their god, but someone else might see it as, you know, that god's just using you with these powers to their own ends. And I, I think even in our world, if people had proof, because people have had quote mark proof throughout history, other religions and other people will find ways to rationalize that. And it can be used in the setting as well. Maybe, I, I don't like to make my players sure of anything. So yeah, maybe they think their god is real, but... But uh, they can't know for sure. They they know they're getting powers, and they, they know that when they pray, they get this power. But they don't know why. I guess it just comes down to, like, how... Yeah, like, how certain do you want your players to be about how this world works? Because if you want them to be uncertain, then, yeah, they, they might be getting it from a god. It might just be a different kind of magic. It might be a different god that's playing with them. Uh, the reason that the god has could be, like, not exactly what the player thinks it is. Or you go towards the, like, no, they know that this god exists and, that you know, they know exactly what's going on. So I guess it kind of depends on what kind of experience you want your players to have in the world. Yeah. You might have two players in the same party that both have proof of their gods that conflict with each other entirely. And that's an interesting thing to go with. Like, you might have a, a cleric of some satanic priesthood, or maybe I should say a warlock, and then a paladin as well, and maybe they're at odds with each other, or maybe... Maybe they conflict with each other entirely. I think it's interesting for the players to then have that debate. And um, you just sit there smugly and know who's right and who's wrong. <laughs> uh, let's move away from religion, I think. But, uh, sure. What, what about... Um, who's guess... the DM of our world? Who? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who's sitting there smugly going, I know exactly what's going on, and not actually knowing what's going on? Joe Rogan, I think. <laughs> he, he reckons he does anyway. Yeah. Um, when it comes to other stuff like like creating cities and creating geography and stuff like that. What's your process for, for creating that kind of stuff? Well, originally it was, it was like stitching maps together of other maps. And then I I started as I got older and more knowledgeable through school and things of trying to make the geography make sense a little bit, you know, rivers running down from mountains towards the sea and things. And then I started getting a kind of paralysis later where Maps just never looked believable to me until I saw this one post on our world building, the subreddit, that just turned Europe into a fantasy map and just completely tore it apart the same way people tear apart your maps, your maps on that subreddit. 
they pointing to England and say, oh yeah, an island nation with a large military power, that's believable. And then just like <laughs> pictures of the Middle East, just Arabian Nights, like all, all of the tropes. And you realize that like, our world from a world building perspective looks ridiculous as well. Have you, have you ever looked at a map of New Orleans? It makes absolutely no sense. It doesn't make sense uh, from infrastructure or uh, geographical standpoint from any uh, any sensible sense of, sense of the word, but the, the history of it makes sense because of all the locks and bayous. And... It's funny that you bring up the real, real world because part of my job, I'm a programmer, and I have to deal with geography data sometimes. And there's this thing called open street maps, which is basically like this open source database of, of mapping information. So you can, instead of going to Google maps or Bing or Apple maps or whatever, you have this open source database that you can look up addresses and stuff like that. And they tried to create a system to classify like levels of geography from like, you know, the country level down to states or provinces and like keep getting more fine, finely and finely, uh, fine-grained information down to like, okay, we've got an address. And one of the things that uh, I was looking at that just kind of drove me nuts when I was looking at this is stuff like New York has extra levels of administrative um, information because it's so densely packed. And so it's got stuff like boroughs and stuff that are part of official maps that no other city in the States has. Or when you look at like England, the way that they classify cities and like there's you know how in the in Canada and the states we've got like counties where like it's kind of a level above city but below province to kind of group areas of people together in the UK they've got multi-county boroughs which are these weird mix of cities and counties in some places and it's because you know like there are places in the UK like cities in in um, in England that have been there for thousands of years so they kind of don't care, you know, how they get classified. It's just a city that's always been there. So I can definitely see how when creating a fantasy world and creating maps and cities, how yeah, focusing on it making sense might not be the best idea. Well, that would be my uh, biggest advice to someone creating their own fantasy map is just don't worry about it making sense. Like think about New York, for instance. If, if you put that in a fantasy setting, you're like, it's a, it's a bustling metropolis built on a pile of trash. It's an island that's been extended it's, and built on, yeah. Yeah, it's just made for a narrative. It it's it sounds like oh okay, yeah, that's cool in your fantasy setting, but that's not real. There are geographically perfect places like Vancouver, between the mountains and the sea in a port or uh Istanbul. But then there's places like Las Vegas, Nevada, in the middle of the desert where they had to build this hitherto unattempted feat of modern engineering of building the Hoover Dam just to make it exist. Or, or uh, countries like, was it like the Netherlands, where they basically told the sea to fuck off? Yeah, the whole, the whole freaking country is under sea level. And people would t- tell you on a world-building subreddit, don't do that, it doesn't make sense. They told me, don't build a circular city. There are circular cities. <laughs> there's, um, I think it's in somewhere in the, like, kind of southern central states, there is a town that is where there is a fire underground that has been burning for 50 years. Oh, yeah. Cause it it's, was like, it's a coal fire. Yeah, it was a coal fire, and it's been burning for 50 years plus now. And, like, that doesn't seem like it should be a thing that's possible, but that well, also sounds like a super cool thing to have in your game. Or the Dead Sea, where yeah. you can float on the surface of it above where you would usually float. Yeah. It sounds like a spiritual experience, and it is to many people. In our world, you can build things like that. There's a place in West Australia where I come from I don't come from this place because I don't think anybody should called Marble Bar. Uh, it's the hottest recorded temperatures on Earth. Often, uh, it's usually matched between that and Death Valley, California, and it's because it's basically a geographical frying pan. It's uh, like outside of any uh, prevailing winds uh, or the ocean, and it's basically a layer of stone with rocky cliffs around it, and it'll get like. In the summer, you have heat waves there of almost 60 degrees for, for weeks at a time. And people live there. It was a mining town. I don't think it so much is anymore. I mean, I'm sure someone will correct me on that. But Yeah, I think we could all just keep coming up with examples of just geography in the world, real world that makes no goddamn sense. And it's probably the takeaway for creating cities and geography is there are some things that you know, yeah, like rivers run downhill, unless you want to get really wacky. But 
when it comes to just how weird nature can be and where people will choose to build cities, just go with whatever you feel like that makes your story more interesting. Yeah, also if you're running in a fantasy setting, you're running in a setting where there is literally magic, like, pervasive throughout the world. So if something doesn't make logical sense, eh, who gives a fuck? It's, it's, a wizard, a did, wizard it. did it. Yeah. <laughs> and there are really uh, famous and successful fantasy universes with terrible maps but one of my favorite is uh the first law trilogy by joe abercrombie okay either of you have read that if you look at the maps in there they're absurdly terrible (laughs) basically looks like the whole world is just altherwin from warhammer old world but with like a lump in the middle and it's basically italy surrounded by spain and then england at the top and it just it doesn't make a whole lot of sense but that's such a rich universe it's like game of thrones with legs it has a really good sense of pace about those books, if I remember. It's been a while since I've read them. There's a new one coming out next year. Mm. What about stuff like um, like political stuff? We touched on it a little bit, but when it comes to countries and uh, people assemb- like assembling themselves into groups, um, how do you handle that kind of stuff? With, like people creating creating countries and touch on a little bit with like cities and weird places but just like why people have decided to group together a certain way like how do you handle that kind of stuff that's the interesting thing about fantasy uh universes where you have multiple sentient races is that sometimes something that would be racist in our world is actually correct in this uh i don't mean between like you know different colored humans but like an orc is bigger than a human Uh, an elf is more graceful than a human those aren't racial stereotypes they're genealogical facts i sound like a eugenicist right now but uh yeah and you think about how how people have banded together and divided themselves in our world and then just multiply that by what if some people were giant green men with tusks or uh literal cat people yeah literal (laughs) cat people i don't have any of them in my world but um it happens and there's the khajiit in the elder scrolls but yeah so it's pretty easy to start in broad strokes saying all the elves are together all the dwarves together but then when you want it to get more interesting you start dividing those and try and figure out what where their differences lie be it geographical be it ideological or even race racism within within those races like maybe maybe the uh brown elves and the white elves don't like each other for the same reasons a lot of humans don't in our world or like hill dwarves and mountain dwarves yeah exactly like, you know, each one thinking they're the real dwarves because of X, Y, or Z. Goblins are a good one for that. Yeah? I love goblins. I mean, our network's called the Cape Goblin Network. You can do anything with a goblin. I think one of the things that I like about Pathfinder is that they seem to treat goblins a little bit more silly, but also somehow with more respect than D&D well, does. Well, they're going to be a core race on their new edition. Yeah. So, like, they... they, they seem to treat them with a little bit more respect than D&D, where in D&D, all the goblinoid races are kind of just... At least goblins are, like, stupid and evil, and hobgoblins are, you know, militaristic and evil, whereas in Pathfinder, there's more shades to them. Yeah, I mean, Pathfinder, I think, when they started out, already was trying to differentiate themselves from D&D enough that they wanted to, like, look at everything a little bit differently. Like, if I recall, the elves are all from another planet or something... But yeah, like it's you can do really interesting stuff with that. So uh, on the topic of politics and world building, because I'm about to run a game of Dragon Heist, which takes place in Waterdeep, and I'm completely unfamiliar with the Forgotten Realms. So it's the kind of introduction to me was reading it, and like, do you know how their kind of like rule structure works for the city? Okay, so there's an open lord who's like in charge. Think like a veterinary from Discworld. And then there's a council of other lords, and they've set up a structure, and this is what I like about, like, politics in a magical setting. Nobody knows who any of the lords are. They have masks and cloaks that are enchanted that when they're wearing them, they all look like they're at the same height. They all have the same neutral voice. So people can't go out of their way to bribe these people. Like a scan of Darkly. Yeah. Kind of the with the, like, shifting face, yeah. like, software. I think... If you're running in a fantasy game, or even like a sci-fi game, I think it takes it benefits you to take a moment to think about what fantasy or sci-fi elements you can use to like affect how politics would work in a place like that. Yeah, it's one of those things where like when you're looking at politics, like like that example of like okay, you've got a ruling council. 
how would magic affect this? Like if, if this is a city that cares about, you know, fairness and justice, what would they do to ensure that you can't bribe the lords? And that would be one solution. And I think that's kind of the power of having a fantasy world to play with is that you can take political structures like, you know, democracy or an oligarchy or monarchy or whatever it is and like play with it and apply magic in different ways to see like in a democracy, if there was like, if voting was a super secure thing that you just had to like put a specific pebble in a dish that you've got at home and then it counts it all magically, like what would that mean for, for direct democracy and stuff like that? I think there's all sorts of interesting ideas that you could play with if you just, yeah, spend some time thinking about how does magic affect this thing? They tackle that really well in book three of the Gentleman Bastard series. If yeah. either of you have read that. That one's Red Sea or Red Skies? Red Sea over Red Skies is number two. Okay. Uh, number three is The Republic of Thieves. Okay, I haven't read that one. Uh, well, I won't give anything away, but basically, you know, our heroes are thrown into a situation where, um, you know, uh, in that series that the Bond Mage I have Carthane? It's been a while. Were they those, like, the magical assassins? Or... Yeah, so in, in that <coughs> universe, there are only one group of mages. Yeah. Um, and they're the, the, the Bond's Magi, which is a guild of mages who have absorbed or killed every other wizard in the world so that they're the only ones and so that then they can jack up their prices to whatever they want and it's something like something like a, a year's wage for a common man is like a half day of, of their but anyway they uh our heroes get enlisted in that story to help rig an election in Carthane, which is where the bonds major secretly rule but there's rules that they're not allowed to use magic or directly affect it so they have to get these outside agents and that's an interesting way to think about it. I think back to what you were saying before to bring up another fantasy universe and cut me out this saying this, but you can put it in the description for some good SEO because it's really relevant right now. Is Ravnica from uh, the plane from Magic the Gathering. Yeah, yeah. The current block is set in Ravnica. And that is a really interesting political history that's based around... Obviously, Magic has some of the largest power creep of any uh, wizards in any <laughs> fantasy setting. Like oh, yeah. you have planeswalkers, which could literally walk between different dimensions of reality and planes of existence haven't they had to do like a reset in magic the gathering because things were just getting too crazy there was in urza's urza destroyed every planeswalker or something they, yeah they've had things with the dragon's war within the cold ballas so nikki b big villain but ravnica i think you're right about that but um they're they're pretty careful to keep the lore consistent they have whole departments on that um that i think mark rosewater is the head of but Ravnica is known as the City of Guilds, and it's a plane that is basically a whole city, and there's these ten guilds, and they have the, the Guild Pact, which is a magically enforced pact between the guilds so they don't fuck with each other, and each guild has a place in that society of the things that they cover, and they're just constantly at these shadow wars and public wars. And there's, there's nine public guilds, and there's one guild, the Demir, which are like the Shadow Spy Guild, that part of the Guild Pact was that they're not allowed to be revealed it's interesting to look in the lore like you can you can read a good overview in about an hour and a half through wikipedia it's about ravnica and the peruns and things magic has great lore yeah and hey that's going to be a DD book setting in a couple of months really yeah yeah, yeah. ravnica uh, Guildmaster's guide to ravnica oh i set a game in ravnica before and i could really use that yeah I mean, then I'm excited because my last name is actually Boros, and that's really? one of the kills. Oh, of course, it is too. <laughs> the uh, the the police of Ravnica. Yeah, red and white, for, um, which were also my favorite magic colors when I was playing actively. So we've talked about like geography and politics and religion a little bit. One of the things I'm curious about curious about with with world building is: Have you ever done anything with like flora and fauna, like unique plants and animals on your world, or have you seen anything in world building of like creatures or plants that are you know not something we'd ever see here because magic or they just you know evolve differently i i haven't done it myself i'd really like to i just get so enamored with other people's uh monsters and cryptids that i like inserting them into my own universes but uh, you asked about it uh if i've seen it in world building and i think the master of this the best person at creating their own flora and fauna is brandon sanderson mm -hmm. in the uh the stormlight archive universe I mean, have you either of you read any of his books? It's on my list of stuff to do. Well, um, he can probably write him faster than you can read him. He's 
uh, me and my friend calculated once that him and Stephen King have the same word count, and it's two thousand finished edited words per day, which yeah, is absurd. If you've ever done any writing, he was the guy who finished off Wheel of Time, right? Yeah, correct. That's yeah. what really rocked him in his put like the last three books out in like two years, where the other ones would took like five apiece or something like that. Yeah, Stormlight Archive. Each one of those books is about a thousand pages long. He releases one per year, and then three other novels during that same year. Uh, anyway. All of his books are, like Stephen King, set in the same universe, but in separate... Well, he's got a kind of a multiverse called the Cosmere. But in the Soulite Archive, uh, he's created this thing that uh, water is quite scarce, except there are these insane storms called high storms, which come through and and basically everything has to be built uh, to brace for high storms. So all buildings are reinforced in the same direction because all high storms come from the same direction. And... Uh, all of the plant and animal life are basically like crustaceans, even though what would be like the mammalian species, like what they use as, as horses and dogs, like axhounds and chulls, basically have chitinous shells. Learn to suck the moisture out of things, or, or the plants will be like rock buds that they'll be open to try and capture as much moisture as possible, and then during the high storms they, they close up so that they can withstand uh, the storms. And I think that's really cool. And I, I ran creatures sort of like that, but out of the D&D Monster Manual in that Shattered Plane campaign I did. One, one of the things that I, I saw recently on one of the D&D subreddits was the, idea of, was the idea of cryptids. And like in your world, which monsters from the Monster Manual or stuff that you've seen are, are not real. They're, they don't exist, but there are myths and legends about like, you know how we've got like the Mothman, Chupacabra, Loch Ness Monster, like stuff like that. Like what what creatures in the monster manual or stuff that you've seen would be a cryptid in your world. And I thought that was a pretty interesting idea of like, cause I think one of the, th- the kind of problems with the monster manual and like, I've got the uh, Tome of Beats beasts <laughs> and beats. Um, and uh, I just recently got the creature codex, which was something I backed on Kickstarter. So I've got books and books and books of monsters and as a DM, I tend to feel like oh, I want to use all of this. I want to put all of this into my games, into my world. But putting all of that in, like especially when you're just building a world, it feels like you know. You think about D and D, and you think about like dragons. And I've seen people it's in the name. Yeah, like well, I've seen people who do stuff like they they think about dragons and like how big they are, and how much they'd have to eat, and how much territory they would need. And talking about how, like, a planet, like, an Earth-sized planet could only support, like, one or two ancient dragons because they're so big. And they just would just need to eat so much or they would have to sleep for, like, centuries at a time and then, like, eat everything and then go back to sleep. And thinking about how stuff like, like, some, like some of the monsters are things that people think they've seen, but, like, it's just a local legend and how that could be fun playing with that kind of stuff they usually turn out to be real in these settings yeah and i think i almost kind of think that it's a it's a fail it's something that i struggle with because i want to put it all in but i think that it's more fun if player and it's something you can do to play with people you know who people who've been playing for a long time where there's a quest to go and figure out what's killing sheep and they think that it's going to be like a bullet or something and then it turns out that, no, it's just a nearby gang is just trying to steal sheep and they're not very good at it or something. And dealing with, like, player expectations in a way that's like, yeah, not everything in the Monster Manual is going to be in this world because that's just too many things. Yeah. Are there, are there creatures or stuff like that that you've done in your world where you have, like, cryptids that's just like, no, it's just a cryptid. It doesn't actually exist. There's just myths, you know, rumors and legends. I, I've had townspeople believe that and then them to be turn out turn out to be true before it's actually a, a core element of the the current build current build the current world that i'm building uh is uh there are a few sort of uh folk legends that people are seeing more and more sightings of i don't want to give it any way in case i ever do finish this novel so. but yeah yeah i i have i have done that a bit i really like how they do that in the witcher when there's there's crazy stuff everywhere and then Geralt would be like are you that's dumb, you know? <laughs> that, that doesn't exist, you idiot. But then I'm going to go fight this bog art, you know? <laughs> yeah. Or it's just, like, people have, like, there's, you know, 20 different things that are just different regions' way of looking at um, 
ogres or fiends or something like something that is pretty rare and it's not seen so somebody who saw a monster once 40 years ago and like stories have been told and those stories have spread and changed because it's a giant game of telephone basically and then it ends up people hear about you know somebody was kidnapped or died out in a field and oh it's got to be this thing that i heard about once and yeah Geralt comes along and goes no you're all idiots yeah it's a, yeah it's obviously just a a, a wyvern <laughs> yeah so i'm enjoying this because this is i think more than we've talked about like really specific other stuff on an episode and this kind of brings me to one of my favorite bits of like world building where you have um like a monster or something that happens on a certain basis that there's a whole like culture built around stopping or ending or whatever so have either of you played final fantasy 10 yes i have not Okay, so... I mean, I've I've played up until the end, and then I got bored with grinding. Yeah, that's fair. That last buff site was... Anyway, uh, the way Final Fantasy X works, what the kind of the crux of the plot is, is that, like, every 15 years or so, this creature called Sin shows up and starts to, like, terrorize the world. And it's this giant creature, and parts of it can break off and become other creatures, and it's this whole thing. And so the plot is basically, there's a summoner... Every time Sin shows up, the summoner has to go on a pilgrimage, collect these different summons, then go and, like, fight it and basically put it to sleep for another 15 years. And it's this whole, like, world-shaking plot that's part, like, part of the lore. It's not just part of the story, you know. This has happened before, and this happens over and over, and there's a cycle, and it turns out, like, some evil god is doing it or something because it's Final Fantasy, and you fight god at the end. But, like, have either of you thought of doing anything like that in a game? Like, I, I like the idea like it's it's one of those things where like there there are giant monsters like the uh, Tarasque, like stuff that in D D it feels like because it's one of those things that when you get to higher levels i like i've never played a higher level game but what i've heard and my worry about if i ever get to like above 15th level is that it feels like it's just okay what's a character a monster appropriate for your level okay cool here's a three session quest to go and find and kill that thing rather than like because you're just like it feels like the more powerful the players get the harder it is to like have storylines that aren't them facing gods and just dealing with stuff in the world because they get so powerful and like at level 20 it feels like everybody knows who you are because you are one of the most powerful things in this world Oh man, you well, should have seen previous editions. <laughs> how I've dealt with that in the past is having basically other parties in the world that are as strong as them, that can be returning adversaries, uh, and then making non-combat encounters a lot harder, which is part of why I like giving these people a town so they get the sort of more money, more problems. Um, they might have to start thinking about, once they get that powerful and world-renowned like geopolitics, and you know making sure that an Inquisition doesn't come and wipe them all out yeah it's it's kind of the um like the watchman problem of like once you've got superpowered beings like how does everybody react to that and it also could be like the trigger for something like wow you've gotten super powerful you've now awakened a couple of crazy ancient beasts that are like we're putting this world to track down and stop people like you but that would actually be a really cool campaign idea i need a notebook <laughs> But um, that's okay. You have a recording. (laughs) I think, yeah, like the idea of having like something like Final Fantasy X where you've got some giant creature or I think like the most the Monster Hunter world, from my understanding, it starts off with you like there is a like the goal of the game, from my understanding, is to go and hunt down this one super powerful monster. But you've got to like level yourself up. You've got to find it and track it as it's moving through the world. And the idea of, yeah, like having something in the world that's super powerful that actually is a background element until you're powerful enough to deal with it. Because that's kind of thing with Final Fantasy X was that you encounter this thing throughout the game. Like there's a couple of like small fights with it as you're like trying to get away or dealing with like, hey, this army's about to fight this thing. Let's like try and help them. I'm pretty sure there's one point where you fight its fin. Just its fin. Yeah. Because it's flying over it. Yeah. And I think... Like, that could be something interesting where you have a a game where, like, there's a cycle to this world and the cycle is ending and, like, this creature has been spawned from the earth and it's it's there in other countries rampaging and, you know, things are falling apart. The country is, like, 
falling into chaos because people don't know what to do and yeah i, I like having a a malleable world that way in and that, that that's one of the problems playing in something like the forgotten realms is you can't just go and wipe out water deep i mean you could but it's not often that you would like and when i create my own world it's like maybe this city has an expiration date and maybe there's an army coming towards it and so there's always that feeling when you're in a an existing world or when you're you're reading a, a book or something like this place is just always going to be there or you know for instance hellboy i never think like oh god is he going to survive i always think like how is he going to beat this monster up yeah and i think i think that is one of the yeah you're right the, one of the best things about homebrew is that i think a lot of people come to the table with the expectation that you know your home city or the country that you're in like it's going to be there you know regardless of what happens in the game but then you could have something like yeah some other country decides to invade and that your country you're in gets annexed or some giant creature, a dragon or a Tarask or elder gods from another dimension come in and just wreck shit. <laughs> like, how does that change the game? How does that change the campaign? And that could be some really fun stuff to play with. Ooh, talking about Waterdeep again has reminded me of like another thing, like the defenses of the city. So Waterdeep has this whole setup for how they like they've got there's a staff that keeps dragons out hidden somewhere beneath it there's living statues that can be brought to life to defend it like there's all this cool stuff so when you're running a fantasy or sci-fi campaign again you can if you want to make an interesting city or an important city i think it's interesting to think about what the defenses would be especially you know if this is a powerful rich city they have access to the funds to like pay an archmage to build a magic barrier for it or whatever and it also leads to the question of like if something if there if there was keyword was a city like that in the past and it's now gone that area is probably like a dead zone because whatever crushed that city probably just wiped it off the map Mm -hmm. well that's where you have something like uh istanbul uh when it used to be the center of the roman empire of constantinople and then it was invaded by the turks they just built on top of it they, they took it, and Constantinople now exists as a sewer system, basically. So it's still there, but what it was is just completely yeah. buried. And, and I think that's something else to, like, going back to building cities and stuff, is, like, if this is a city that's been there for a long time, like, there are, like, London and, you know, like, the metropolises that have been there forever in, in our world that people go to dig up a vacant lot and they find it, it it's an archaeological site because they found you know part of the old wall of london or they found a graveyard or they found what used like what was a vacant lot is actually four buildings that have been built on top of each other over the years like it's just how history works yeah people tend to just build on top of whatever was there before and that could be something interesting especially i think because one of the things with world building that I've found is that you tend to focus on world building rather than building an experience. And one of the things that I'd like to do is build a campaign that's set entirely inside of just a single city and have stuff like, yeah, this city is thousands of years old. So there's like sewer systems and ruins and like you could dig down and have like a mega dungeon underneath and... And playing with that kind of stuff. You just that's water, water deep. deep. <laughs> <laughs> fine. Ravnica will be like that as well. Yeah. No, I don't know a bunch of Ravnica about Ravnica, but is it like the city encompasses most of that planet? It's like Coruscant. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But with magic. But with magic. I mean, Star Wars is more fantasy than sci-fi, anyways. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, well, well, that goes back to what we were speaking earlier about using real-world references. And you think about, uh, I'm listening. I listen to books, so I say I listen, so I read uh, The Once and Future King at the moment. And uh, they make references to the Crusades and things. They talk about Aleppo being this this uh, fortress city that was uh, you know hard to war against. And that's gone now, basically, from all of, you know, things happening in Syria right now and recently. And Yeah. And I'm, I'm, what's that place going to look like in 50 years? Yeah. And I... I extra history which is a like side channel that the extra credits people do where they they basically get sponsored by like games that are set in like ancient periods like um total like total total war or whatever it is but they've done a couple of interesting series on they did one that i thought was really interesting which was on the bronze bronze age collapse and 
basically like what I got out of it was that the Bronze Age collapse was basically there were a bunch of civilizations that were big and powerful and as complicated as the civilizations we have now today. But for some reason, they all just collapsed within the period of like 50 years. There are places in the world that used to be huge, thriving metropolises that are now, you know, a couple of stones in the dirt. Like there's nothing left. And that kind of stuff, I think, is really fascinating because when you're doing world building, like when you're thinking about where to place cities or you know, why some, like, this country doesn't like this country. Like, it can be the kind of thing where there was a reason at some point, but, like, the re- actual reason is lost to history. And that can be, it feels like kind of a cheat from a world-building perspective, but looking at our own, like, I think this is the thing we keep coming back to, is that our own world has stuff that doesn't make sense, that we don't know the reasons that, or people built cities in weird places, and... You can have that in your world and it doesn't have to make sense for like, why do these two countries hate each other? Why are they fighting all the time? I don't know. It's just the way things are. Yeah. Or it could be something for your players to discover. Yeah. Yeah. That's the nice thing about running something where you might have like demigods of time or of knowledge or whatever. You can, you can build a whole quest or a whole campaign about finding out why a thing is happening. And yeah, you don't have to know. You just have to stay one, one session ahead of your players. Or if you're good at improv, just a couple of seconds. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is probably a good place to, to wrap up. All right. I haven't really had like a list of questions. What do you want to ask? The final question? The final question. So, uh, Doug, if you could go back in time to when you were first starting running games, what's one piece of advice you'd give yourself about world building? It's something I said earlier in the episode is just don't worry about it. Like, uh, if you come up with an idea, it's, it's, it's valid. It doesn't have to make sense. It's just, yeah, look at a historical precedent. Nothing Nothing really makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's because humans are weird and stupid. But Agreed. <laughs> thanks so much for coming on. This is this is really fun. Talking, like, this is the kind of stuff that I really like about being a DM is the world building stuff. So it's always fun to get a chance to talk about it. That's why I didn't insist we write questions for this one. Like, oh, Sean, will, Sean will have lots of questions, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, you already plugged uh, your other podcast. Is there anything else that you'd like to plug before we wrap up? Yeah. How about... Um, Everything Economics, also on the Cave Goblin Network, uh, that Talia Murdoch does. If you want to really know about humans not making sense in the world, uh, check that one out. Yeah, she produces my show and I produce hers, so there cool. you go. <laughs> uh, is there anywhere else people can find you online? Yeah, uh, you can follow me at Doug Vandalay. You can follow my podcast at Comedy Zeitgeist. And I think that that's, a, that's about it from me. All right. Well, okay, thanks cool. for having me here, guys. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on the show and reaching out to us. Our artwork is done by the wonderful Haley Boros. Our theme music is Overworld by Kevin McLeod. You can find us on Twitter at DMs Vancouver. You can find me at Jesse Boros, or sorry, at Jesse the Red. And you can find Sean at Sean P. Hager. And we've got a Patreon. For just $1 a month, you get access to episodes a week early. Yeah, uh, big thanks to Craig and Haley, who are both patrons, and send this show a little bit of money, and hopefully we can get some more equipment. And uh, thanks to our sponsors. And thanks to our sponsors, Dice Bard and Liberus Arcana. Go and check them out. Make sure to rate and review on iTunes. <laughs> yes. That's the thing we should remember to say at the end of every episode. <laughs> I never say it, but I've said it, I said it on, on a, both the podcasts I've guessed it on now. <laughs> oh, uh, podcast versus podcast, I'm guessing? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Three episodes of that. Anyways. Bye. Bye. Bye.